this is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we address our nagging questions about the book of Joshua and its stories of mass slaughter and genocide. Sounds like fun. Yeah. Real, <laughs> real uh, uplifting story. You know, I've titled this podcast, uh, The Hardest Story in the Bible for Me, and I, I wish I could skip this this one. I want the Probably the book of the Bible, not probably. I think the book of the Bible I struggle with the most in... And all the scripture is the book of Joshua. Um, just the story of going in and killing women and children and cattle and livestock. Uh, it's hard for me to process that in light of everything else that we've been reading. Now, at the same time, I don't want to undo everything that we've been studying and reading just because of one story. I mean, we've, we've run into story after story after story after story of God's love, his acceptance, his forgiveness. I mean, I have seen a God that is a thousand to three, as he told Moses in the book of Exodus, um, a thousand to three love and justice, a thousand generations to those that love me to the third generation of those who hate me. Like that ratio has stood the test of our study of Torah. And I'm not going to up in that just because of one instance that I have a hard time wrestling with, but I am going to wrestle with it because it doesn't seem to match everything that we've been we've been looking at. So, and I would imagine you're not alone. I, I know we've got the title as for you specifically, but, uh, I think a lot of our listeners are probably in the same boat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know the things that I was handed. Um, this is probably going to make us uneasy that I'm going to say this, but it's okay. Uh, I remember the story in the worldview I was handed about say Islam when I was growing up here in the Northwest. Um, and then I went and I read the Quran and I was told over and over again, like, all the stuff that the Quran teaches. Now, I've read the Quran front to back twice now. I can tell you one thing. It is harder to justify the stuff I read in our scriptures uh, than it is to read the stuff in the Quran, by far. Um, Ten times. Uh, So it is... This story is hard to get... um, to get our head around. I've engaged in so many conversations with people that have a hard time accepting the scriptures or, or come from an atheistic worldview. This is a big one for a lot of people, and it's a big one for me. Um, so I've had to wrestle with this story quite a bit. Now, a lot of me would like to just kind of skip this podcast and go right on to the next one. Uh, but because it's hard to to wrestle with for me and because it's difficult, I'm, uh, I want to make sure we stop here and we deal with this conversation. So not to mention the next one's still about Joshua. Uh, the next one is, it'd be nice just to skip to that one. It'd be, yeah. you know, we wouldn't have to deal with, but, but I want to be, I want to somewhat model a uh, wrestler with the text. Cause I don't have a lot of resolutions here. I'm going to say that up front too. Um, I'm not going to offer a bunch of resolutions, this conversation. I'm not going to tie it up with a nice bow, um, and make it to where it's all easy to sleep tonight. Uh, I'm still wrestling with this story. Uh, If I want to be honest and and approach the scriptures with integrity, uh, this is a hard, uh, this is a hard story to deal with. I know for others it's not, um, but for me, uh, for me it is. So uh, I think we can skip the review. We just did a whole capstone lesson of session one and an intro lesson to session two. We reviewed, we can skip that. We can get right down to business. Sounds good. All right. I am, by the way, uh, I'm staring at, as I do this podcast, an old blog post that I wrote Way back in December 5th of 2013. That was a long time ago. I was but a babe back then. <laughs> Not quite, but I am looking at this blog post. I'm using it kind of as a template. And This was you before went... you led your first trip to Israel? Yeah, it was. Yep, before Bema trip 2014. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I've... Uh, 
I'm using that. You'll link it in the show notes, I'm sure. Uh, you can go back there and look at it yourself. And there will be some other resources that I'm sure we'll link to in our conversation today as well. But that's one of the things I'm using here as I go through it. Um, no desire to kind of wrap this up. I think I was saying that uh, earlier. I, I, I'm not going to try to resolve this tension, but I want to be honest about this tension in the book of Joshua. If you've read the book of Joshua before, um, you're somewhat familiar with what I'm talking about. Joshua and the Israelites go in, and obviously there's a famous story of Jericho. They march around the city uh, seven days in a row, and then seven times, and they shout, and the walls fall down. Uh, and that's that's like a that's a pretty novel story. But then there's all these other stories of just they go in and they kill everything: men, women, children, livestock. Nothing survives according to the Joshua record. Like, how do I, how do I deal with that? So, just a few things I wanted to kind of walk through as I looked at this. I looked at this story. First of all, um, if I were just going to look at this from an academic perspective, from a, if I was going to be a textual critic, um, most scholars are going to argue, and and someday we'll talk more about minimalism and maximalism. But most scholars who are minimalistic are going to argue that the conquest never actually literally happened. Uh, we have not one shred of evidence. Um, that the conquest took place. And I know that a lot of people have watched the History Channel and the cool show about Jericho and the walls falling, and people have seen that. Um, the History Channel, one of my favorite channels, by the way. Love the History Channel. Love the Discovery Channel. Love uh, Animal Planet. I could sit down in front of a, a, a marathon of Finding Bigfoot and just watch that all day long. But why? Because it's great entertainment. It is not my source for academic material. Uh, I, I love watching this stuff because it's entertaining and it, I put it in a different category of my life than when I am learning. Uh, so the History Channel, probably not the best place to go for our academic resources. Academic material doesn't get the TV ratings they no. need. <laughs> no, it doesn't. So I know that everybody's seen the episode on the History Channel about Jericho and all the evidence that exists out there. Uh, let me just tell you, from respected academic circles, um, the scholarship, the people that dig in the dirt over in Israel, uh, in the region of Palestine, um, there's no suitable archaeological evidence that the conquest ever happened. Not just Jericho, but any of these battles that we read about. Um, I can remember years ago reading through some of the archaeological abstracts from Catholic archaeology. Um, it was from archaeology in the 60s, so it's still pretty dated, but I can remember all the articles of we just lack any evidence of the conquest taking place. So most scholarship is going to say, listen, the conquest never really took place. The story of Joshua is a more allegorical rendering. There is a genre of literature, and this part is true, by the way. There is a genre of literature. Uh, you, you might call it the conquest genre, the genre of conquest narratives, where a, a foreign king, usually we find these on, uh, we'll talk about, uh, we'll find these stellas which is like a big rock pillar, but it's got a story inscribed on it. Uh, in fact, I bet you could even find a picture to put in the show notes of a Stella. I bet you could probably find that I'll somewhere. see what I can find. All right. Uh, there are some famous Stellas. I'm sure there's stuff on Wikipedia, uh, common use stuff we can put on there. And it's it's got a, it'll tell the story of how a king conquered a people. And the story is always embellished because... You know what we say about history. Who writes Who writes history, Brent? The victor. The victor writes the history. And you better believe that when the victor writes the story, he's going to make a sound 
pretty amazing. And so they just tell these stories of unbelievable conquest, of how they just absolutely crushed and destroyed. In all reality, the battle could have been quite close. It, they may have even lost the battle. One of the references we have is from Sennacherib, the uh, great Assyrian king of the Old Testament. And he tells the story on one of his stellas uh, about how he he had Hezekiah trapped like a bird in a cage. He talks about how he defeated Hezekiah. Well, if we believe in the accuracy of our Hebrew scriptures, that's not how the story went down at all. In one sense, he did have Hezekiah shut up like a bird in a cage. And then Sennacherib had to run home with his tail between his legs because of the plague that God sent amongst his people and sent Sennacherib home. And there was no defeat. So this conquest narrative is something that um, all throughout this land, lots of different kings. We have lots of records of kings. Uh, I remember uh, there's an Egyptian record of of Pharaoh, and he goes out, I believe it's Ramses II, and he goes out to fight the Hittites. And the whole record is this embellished, he basically single-handedly, Pharaoh does, he goes out there on his own, he single-handedly defeats the Hittites just in time for his army to get there to see the, the victory and the triumph of Pharaoh. Like these are always these huge embellished stories of conquest narrative. There is a conquest genre, a conquest narrative genre, and it could be that Joshua is playing into this hand, or the, the, the narrative and the tale of Joshua, the book of Joshua, is in fact using and employing this genre to tell the story. But um, one of the things that I try not to do is I try not to rely on textual criticism alone. Uh, I try not to just exegete the scriptures I want to come at the scriptures from a Jewish perspective, which means I'm going to eisegete, <laughs> what we call eisegesis. Uh, the Western world is used to exegesis. The Eastern world engages in eisegesis, which means conclusions that I pull out of as a Jewish reader. I want to find buried where, Brent? In the text. It's got to be in the text. So I want to be aware of this. I want to wrestle with that. Did, did the conquest really happen? I don't know. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. But I don't just want to rest the conversation there. I want to keep digging. I want to keep pushing. I want to keep wrestling some more. Maybe it didn't happen. Maybe this is all an allegorical conquest genre narrative. But the question still remains, why did why is this inspired authoritative record in the scripture? So we have to keep pushing. Um, uh, by the way, there's lots of things that have been written. Um, I shouldn't mention this at the top of the conversation, but uh, uh, there's a sermon by Greg Boyd years ago. Um, where he was talking about Christology, he was talking about uh, the centrality of uh, the crucified Christ and how everything we understand in the scriptures has to be seen through the lens of of Jesus Christ crucified. He had some interesting observations to make um, about uh, about the uh, conquest in light of that theology. And so we'll we'll link that hopefully in the show notes if anybody wants to listen to that. Uh, one of our friends, our buddy Aaron Couch, he. Uh, he wrote a blog post, uh, actually just offered some links a few years back as well that I thought were interesting. Um, neither one of these sources did I agree with in their entirety. I didn't think they wrapped it up in a nice, neat bow, um, but I thought they were interesting. I thought they were interesting sources to look at. Another source, um, uh, I quoted this years ago in my blog post, but now it's going to be in uh, Rob Bell's new book. I know, Rob Bell, controversial, oh, whatever, uh, but he... He has a new book coming out called What, what is the Bible? Uh, you're going to find a ton of stuff in that book that sounds very similar 
very, very similar to the things that we study here in Bema. And uh, that book was originally a Tumblr, uh, like a blog series that he did on Tumblr. And they eventually made it into the book that's coming out here. Uh, by the time they hear this podcast, it may even be out already. It will be. It will be. Okay. And um, so that new book is out. But in that book, he talks uh, about conquest and useful stuff there as well. So we'll put a link to that book out there as well. All kinds of good stuff. Um, so there's a theory that maybe the conquest didn't even happen. Uh, one of the other things that I often look at is what God does and what God doesn't say. Um, uh when we read the book of Joshua, I, I think when Joshua comes out and he tells the people, this is what the Lord says. I think it's easy to just assume, oh, that, well, God must've said that. The problem is, is that the book of Joshua doesn't have any problem telling us when God speaks and then Joshua can repeat what God says. But the, the narrator of Joshua has no problem telling us when God says something. And there are a lot of things that Joshua says that God says that we're not told that God said. Some people are like, boy, I feel like you're questioning. I think we should be able to assume that. I'm not sure we should. It's at least a question that I want to wrestle with. Um, There's only one place where God actually shows up and gives a command, uh, and that's Jericho. And it's because of this principle of first fruits. God says, I want it all. So here are your very strict instructions about what you're supposed to do with the city of Jericho. I don't want you. There's no pillaging. There's no booty. There's no, uh, there's no reward. There's no money. There's no people. I want it all to be given to me completely consecrated. Speaking of consecrated, um, one of the things that God often says, this is not true with every single reference, but one of the things that God says, um, when he says go and sometimes we translate in the English Bible, go destroy this people. Oftentimes, I would say more often than not, the word that's being used in Joshua when God does say to, quote unquote, destroy is the word consecrate. Now, it's, it's easy to see why the Israelites would interpret that destroy, because there's only two ways you can consecrate something in their world. You can consecrate it by giving it to God. You can go to the temple, go to the tabernacle, and you can take the thing that's supposed to be consecrated, and you can give it to, the, to God to use at the temple. You give it to the priesthood. You can give the you can even redeem it by offering the money for the thing. But if you can't do that because the thing is unclean, because the thing can't be taken to the temple, then you have to go destroy it. Um, a good example of this would be in Exodus, where we're told about the broken-necked donkey, where you're supposed to redeem the firstborn of every animal because of the story of the Passover. And there are certain things you can redeem. You can take a goat, because it's a clean animal, and you could actually give the temple a goat to use in their sacrifices. That would be an acceptable animal to give, to consecrate. But a donkey, a donkey is an unclean animal. You can't, you can't give an animal to the tabernacle. And so instead you have to take the donkey out to the wilderness and you have to kill it. And so it's easy to see how somebody would be like, well, these pagans, these pagans are unclean. So we're going to be left with only one mode of consecration. That's going to be utter destruction. But that's not necessarily what God says, and I think the New Testament will challenge later this idea that pagans are unclean, that Gentiles are unclean. So it's something, again, to put out there, and I wrestle with. I wrestle with what God does say, and I wrestle with what God doesn't say. In the same breath, I have to wrestle with this idea, uh, God has to meet us on our terms. It is incredibly difficult for us in 2017— 
2017. To think all the way back to 1000 BC and earlier and try to understand their understanding, their perception of the world, their understanding of global ethics and morality. We cannot impose what we understand to be ethical on their current understanding. They just weren't as, I don't know if you want to say, evolved, progressed of a society as we are, but they have a certain understanding of the world. They were used to one language, and that was the language of war and conquest. And God is willing to meet us where we're at and and meet humanity there and move humanity forward. That's one of the things that you'll see in that Rob Bell book we, we saw earlier one of the points he made in that blog post years ago. So these are just things to to wrestle with. But there are some observations that I did want to I did want to look at. Um these are in that blog post that we talked about. Um first one is this, there are an awful lot of stories where God is pretty quiet. Kind of referencing what God did and didn't say. Joshua does an awful lot of planning, Joshua does an awful lot of strategizing, Joshua does an awful lot of pep talking, but God really doesn't say a whole lot in the book of Joshua. One of the things I did years ago was I was writing out word for word the book of Joshua, wrestling with what was in there. And I noticed how much Joshua said and how little God actually said. And I wanted to make that observation as I walked through. Uh, second observation, Joshua seems to be acting very much like the pagan commanders of the world around him. Uh, when he conquers a king, he'll take their bodies and he impales them on on large sharpened poles outside the city gates. Uh, this is how... Um, this has long been a move of war in the ancient world. Uh, remember, if any... I may be giving too much away here. Any Game of Thrones fans out there? Uh, one of the things we see in the Game of Thrones series, not that I can recommend it. I can't. It's on HBO. It's very HBO-y, if I can say that. <laughs> But one of the things, if you are a Game of Thrones fan, you see this all throughout the take take the conquered king, the slaughtered king, put him on a big pole outside the city. It sends a message to everybody that walks by, everybody that enters your city, don't mess with us because this is what we do to our enemies. So Joshua does the same thing in the record of the book of Joshua. He takes the kings that he conquers, he puts them on, on poles, and he hangs them outside the city. But what's shocking is uh, my next observation at the very same time, Joshua is quite different than the pagan kings around him. He doesn't mock or chide inappropriately, which is always what kings do. I mean, think back to that story of Sennacherib in the Old Testament, mocking Hezekiah, mocking the Israelites that are listening on the wall. Joshua doesn't do any mocking and chiding inappropriately. He, he disposes of the bodies by nightfall. Okay, now, now hold on. Let's process that for a moment. So Joshua takes the takes the bodies of conquered kings and he impales them on a pole, but then by nightfall takes them off the pole and disposes of the bodies because that's what Torah teaches him. Like that's what God desires. So what's the point of putting them up on a pole if they're only going to be there for a few hours? Like that's not the point of why you put a conquered king up on top of a pole anyway. So there's there are things that Joshua is doing that makes him stand out as a commander, a conqueror that has a totally different mode of ethics than any conqueror around him. Joshua is one of the softest conquerors the land of Canaan has ever seen. Consider the story of the Gibeonites, uh, Gibeonites, excuse me, the Gibeonites in uh, Joshua chapter 9 and their deception. They trick the Israelites into forming a military treaty with their people. This kind of ancient agreement we've talked about before is suzerain vassal. So they're basically asking 
uh, Israel to be their suzerain and they will be the vassal. The problem is, is they enter into this covenant based on complete deception. They show up with moldy bread, torn clothes, or like we've come a long way. We don't live here in this land, but we've heard about you guys and we want you guys to take care of us. So we'll be your vassal. So Israel agrees to this deal and then finds out later that they've deceived. They've been deceived. Well, there's no suzerain vassal covenant anywhere where if the suzerain finds out they have been deceived, they don't turn around and crush the vassal. But here's this group of people where God says, well, you've made an agreement with them now. So now that you've made a covenant, now you've made an agreement, you have to stand by your word. This is who we are. So again, they're acting like the people around them, but they're also acting totally different than the people around them. So in the midst of these stories of conquest, next observation I have here, the greater stories, the ones that seem to rise to the top of Joshua, are stories of people being saved and redeemed. Like the Gibeonites would be one of those stories. In fact, there's a, there's a theory out there that Joshua actually has a very large, the whole book could be this large chiasm, big shocker here. The center, if you, and this is a theory, I'm not sure if I'm sold on this theory, but if this theory is correct, the center would be in Judges 11, and you have the passage and the reference there, do you not? And by Judges 11, you mean Joshua? Yeah. Keep wanting to make this some other book. That's how much I (laughs) I hate this book. All right, Joshua 11. So Joshua took this entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah and the mountains of Israel with their foothills, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, to Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and put them to death. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time, except for the Hivites along living in the Gibeon. Not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites, who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. All right, sounds like a pretty bleak paragraph. Like, here's all these kings that got conquered, utterly destroyed, without mercy. And yet, if this theory of a chiasm is correct, the center phrase of this chiasm is none other than the beginning of verse 19. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them in battle. If that's the center, like consider this whole entire book of Joshua, and that's the center verse of a gigantic chiasm. If that's true, boy, how does that shape the tale of the whole tale of this conquest is a chiasm pointing to one fact. There were people who were saved because of the covenant that God's people made with them. Man, that could totally change what's going on in Joshua. Again, just something to wrestle with. But there's other stories too. I mean, the stories we, we, we think about as we look at Joshua, what about Rahab? I mean, that's one of the main stories. What is that story? That's a story of a pagan prostitute being the, the, the hero of the story and end up being pardoned and saved by God and his people. I mean, really, the stories that rise to the top are not stories of conquest. The stories that the author spends time with are stories of redemption and rescue. Seems totally backwards. Does this passage in Joshua 11 suggest that uh, they attempted to make treaties with the people and none of them were willing to make a treaty? Well, it seems to suggest that, doesn't it? Like now that you see the possibility of that being the center verse of the chiasm, you kind of go back and you look at that and you kind of, it seems to allude to the fact Nobody else did this, but the Gibeonites did. In the middle of a paragraph that seems to be about the utter destruction of everyone, there seems to be these allusions to either what could have happened 
what did happen, what ought to have happened, there are some allusions that call into question uh, what seems to be the whole premise of the book of Joshua. This isn't going to be the only book, by the way, we see of this. Uh, Lamentations, we're going to study later, is going to be a very similar type of a feel to it. A big chiasm that seems to be all about absolute lament, and all of a sudden it's going to be about something totally different. Could Joshua be the same kind of a thing? It's a possibility. But there's uh, just a couple closing thoughts about Joshua. How are we doing here? Oh, you know, we're at 25 minutes. We're doing good. We're doing good. This could be a long one, but we're doing good. A couple closing thoughts. I did put a presentation with this for this part of our conversation. So it does has a few photos on it, a few pictures, should I say, a few depictions. Um, but it could help us here with our, our conversation. Uh, as I wrestle with Joshua, I want to remember, I want to keep in mind context. So let me talk about the Canaanites or what history would know as the Amorites, the people who lived in this land that God told uh, his people, told Joshua he wanted him to take. Um, these artistic depictions are not designed to be crude. In fact, they're actually incredibly tastefully done considering what they're depicting here. This first slide here would be an, an artist's uh, depiction of uh, fertility cults. Uh, the Amorites had rampant fertility cults. Uh, some of them called uh, Ashtoreth, who would later be known as Asherah in later history. But uh, Asherah was the goddess of sexual fertility. Um, one of the things that you find without exception all throughout the land of Canaan prior to the conquest is fertility cults. Uh, again, I think I've recommended The Source before by James Mishner. Incredible read when it comes to understanding this. The first opening 10 chapters of the source will will absolutely revolutionize the way you can understand your Old Testament. Um, but in that, all these historical fiction stories of people from this day and age, pagan inhabitants of this land, women struggling with the oppressive power of the sexual fertility cult. Um, in, that, in that book, Mishner will tell a story about a woman. She has a husband and the new sexual fertility prostitute comes into town and she's pregnant. And if she wants to survive her pregnancy and if she wants to have a healthy baby, her husband has to go spend a week um, having sexual intercourse with the sexual fertility cult pro- prostitute at the temple. Um, it, it just paints this picture of what kind of a culture is going on here? The next the next slide here depicts um, one of the most brutal things to wrestle with and to hear about. Uh, the ancient Amorites would sacrifice uh, firstborn babies uh, to the god, whether it was the Phoenician Baals, whether it was the god Molech. Uh, later in the story, they had all kinds of the gods of the Amorites. Uh, everybody was required to bring their, this is also in the source, by the way, they would bring their firstborn children, they would create these, the Phoenicians especially had these, that's what's depicted in this picture here on the presentation. They had these uh, statues of Baal that were, the statue was also a furnace and they would stoke a fire in the bottom of this statue. It had a, it had a, an opening, a hole in its belly. It had an outstretched arms that because of the fire would glow red hot. They would take uh, a newborn infant and they would uh, unwrap it from its swaddling clothes. They would lay it naked on the red-hot hands of the Baal uh, idol, and the grimace and the scream of pain that would come from this baby as it sat on the idol. The Baal priests called it the 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 smile of Baal. 
um, and that infant would slide down the arms into the furnace and the burning uh, fire and the stomach of the Baal statue. We have found Canaanite graveyards with tens of thousands of infant corpses in them. Uh, when I wrestle with this, um, I find this passage, there's a passage in Genesis 15. Uh, if you remember that story, the blood path covenant that we talked about before, um, one of the things that God says when he's talking to Abraham in that, in that story is he says, the sins of the Amorites have not yet reached their full measure. Like God's not willing to give up on the Amorites. That's spoken 450 years before the conquest. Like God endured this for at least four to five centuries. Like make no mistake, God heard the cry of every single one of those babies. And if I were in God's position, I mean, I don't know about any of our listeners, but if I'm in God's position, how many cries are, are, is enough? How many cries is too much? Is it one, one baby? 10 babies, a hundred babies, a thousand babies. How many cries reached the ears of God and God decided that he was going to be patient. And I think we sit and we go, we think to ourselves, God has to do something. God has to show up. How can he sit there and not do something about the evil in the world? I think we have these questions often. Uh, And so the next slide, God, God finally does something. He says, I want you to go in. I want you to, I want you to clean house. I want everything to be torn down. I want it all to be destroyed. I don't want anything left because I've heard enough baby cries for the last time. I've heard enough causative. I want it completely destroyed. I want the land purged of this nonsense. And, uh, and then we cry, how could God Okay, authorize mass slaughter. And I'm uneasy with both sides of that tension, just like every one of our listeners is. Uh, I'm uneasy with that. I have a hard time reconciling that in my mind, except to fall back and say, I'm glad I'm not God. I'm glad I'm not the God who has to make that call, because I'm not sure I would do a very good job knowing when to be patient and knowing when to say, enough, we are bringing order to the chaos. Enough death, enough sexual abuse, enough. We're putting an end to it. We're doing something about 500 years worth of infant murder. Um, we're finally cleaning house on unbelievable sexual abuse and oppression. I just don't know I would know how to manage that well. God is incredibly slow to anger. I mean, he lived up to what he said in the book of Exodus. He is slow to anger, abounding in love, uh, quick to forgive. Uh, he'll, he'll, he'll show love to a thousand generations, but to three generations, he will clean house. I mean, that's, that's what I end up seeing here. And so um, I just find this to be a hard story to wrestle with. I keep wanting to resolve this and I can't resolve it. I just know it's incredibly difficult. Uh, but maybe I'd add um, maybe one more thing. You have another passage. Uh, you have a passage about uh, when they crossed the Jordan in Joshua 4. How about you read that to us? First three verses? 
Yeah. uh, When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. Right. So the next picture uh, that you have on your presentation shows uh, what's being talked about here in that passage. These are called standing stones or stones of witness. Now, these stones are different than what I was talking about earlier when I talked about stellas. Stellas have writing on them. They'll even have plaster, and a stella is there to tell the story of the conquest. But a standing stone, a stone of witness, has no writing on it. It's supposed to stick out like a sore thumb. It's supposed to stand out and look totally awkward and demand that whoever sees it ask the question, what happened here? They're called stones of witness because at some point you have to tell the story. Somebody has to be there to say, let me tell you the story of what happened here. Um, the picture that we have here is actually at a, what's called Tel Gezer in the Shefela over in Israel. Uh, Tel Gezer was a big city, one of Solomon's main fortifica- forta- fortifications, fortified cities. Uh, it's, one of, it's one of those uh, sites and the, the stones we see here, there's actually 12 of them. Um, not in the picture, but there's 12 of them all together, but they are not actually Israelite stones. Everybody thought they were when they first discovered them. They're totally pagan. They're totally Canaanite, but they are standing stones. They are stones of witness. Another story that we could think of would be in Genesis when Jacob is at what he will call Bethel, uh, Bethel, house of God. He has that dream. If you remember Jacob's dream of a ladder with angels ascending and descending, he gets up the next morning and he was sleeping on a stone. And he takes the stone and he stands it up and he pours oil on it and anoints it. And that stone is where he brings his family back to later in the story. I believe Genesis 36, 35, 36. And uh, he tells the story of what God has done in his life. These are stones that tell the story. When we read that in Joshua 4, they cross the Jordan. While the priests are still standing in the Jordan, they go get these massive stones from the Jordan. They go and they stand them up so that anytime they walk by, they're going to be able to tell the story about how God stopped up the Jordan River. And one of the questions I love to stop here and ask is I love to ask the question, uh, do we have any standing stones in our life? One of the things I find in our culture is we could do a better job of passing on the stories of God working in our lives to our children. I think part of the problem is we just don't have any standing stones. We don't have anything in our life that sticks out that makes our kids look at us and say, what's that all about? And I don't do necessarily a great job of this, but one of the things you'd see if you walk through my office is all kinds of weird little trinkets and doodads and uh, all kinds of weird things that hang on my office shelves and sit on my desk. And they're all standing stones. If you sit at my desk long enough, you'd notice this grimy old football you wouldn't even know what it is. It's a, it's a football belt. It's from my football uniform in high school. It's got all these little tapes on it about all the games that we won my senior year. When I, when I got done with the football season, I kept the belt. Don't tell my coach. I was supposed to turn that in, but I didn't. I kept it. And uh, it's this, I, Are you uh, past the statute of limitations? I think so. I think I'm okay. If he listens. Hi, Coach Bendorf. Um, uh, coach Deal actually would be the one I probably need to apologize to. Uh, but nevertheless, um, this, this belt hangs on my desk. If you were to ask me about it, I'd have to tell you the story about uh, my senior year in high school when I was, I was going to go play college football. I had a scholarship. I was going to go pursue my desires to be a lawyer and go to college. And God changed that plan 
and he changed the course of my life, and he called me into ministry, and I went instead. Instead of going to Dartmouth University, I went to Boise Bible College, <laughs> and everything changed uh, for me, and that's a standing stone. Um, looks ridiculous. Somebody would ask, why in the world you got a dirty belt hanging out of your desk drawer? Because it's a standing stone. Reminds me of where I've come from. Reminds me of where I'm going. So one of the questions I ask as I study the book of Joshua is, do we set up any standing stones? Do we erect any, uh, I believe masava is the Hebrew term, if I'm getting my, if I remember it correctly. Uh, do I have any of that in my, in my life? Do I, do I erect any stones that force me to tell the story and bear testimony to the things that God has done? One last point about Joshua. I've saved probably, if there's anything compelling and inspiring, I've saved it for the end. You have Joshua 1 on your computer, Brent. Would you read us that whole chapter? What I want our listeners to listen to, listen for the phrase, uh, in the Hebrew, it's hazak vachamatz. Hazak vachamatz. It is be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Go ahead and read Joshua 1. Listen for that phrase. After the death of Moshe, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moshe's aid, Moshe, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moshe. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moshe, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moshe gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, Go through the camp and tell the people, Get your provisions ready. Three days from now you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moshe the servant of the Lord gave you after he said, The Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moshe gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men ready for battle must cross over ahead of you, ahead of your fellow Israelites. You are to keep them until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moshe, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan toward the sunrise. And then they answered Joshua, Whatever you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moshe, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moshe. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them, will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Right, so this is the opening chapter to the whole tale of Joshua. The rabbis have pointed out, uh, this is such a stunning chapter because of this refrain, be strong and courageous, is given to all three parties in this story. First of all, God keeps insisting to Joshua, Joshua, you got to do this. Be strong and courageous. 
Hazak vachamatz, hazak vachamatz. He keeps saying, you've got to be strong and courageous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. So Joshua takes this inspiration. He turns around to the people and he tells the people, listen, guys, we're going to do this. Hazak vachamatz, be strong and courageous. And at the very end of the chapter, the people turn around and say back to their leader, Joshua, we're with you. We think you can do this. Hazak vachamatz. Now, let me go back to this idea that maybe, whether the conquest happened literally, historically, or didn't, let's go back to this idea that the writer of Joshua might be employing conquest narrative as a genre to make a greater point. If that's true, one of the things the writer could be saying is unbelievable, miraculous conquest is possible if we all stand together and encourage one another to hazak vachamatz. Like when everybody can look at each other and the people aren't against their leaders and the leaders don't resent the people and God's not, when we all realize that God is saying, be strong and courageous. When our leader's first impulse is to encourage the people and say, be strong and courageous. When the people can look at their leader and say, we're behind you, be strong and courageous. Miracles are possible. Miraculous conquests, not just of people, but of spiritual conquests. The mountains that you and I need to take each and every day can be taken, miraculously taken, if we have the support of everybody around us, all supporting each other, one to another. Hazak vachamatz. If there's one takeaway I have from Joshua that actually makes me want to get up and give a hearty fist pump, it's the idea of hazak vachamatz. Whatever it is that we have that stands before us, we can do this. But we have to have each other's backs. Hazak vachamatz. I believe Aaron got that tattooed on his arm. Is that correct? Uh, I believe so. I, I am not as familiar with Aaron's tattoos as oh, I maybe man. should be, I guess. I don't yeah. know. I'm pretty positive that's what he's got on his on his arm there. He does enjoy that particular phrase. He sure does. But there we go. I think that's my I think that's all the blah I have to spill about the book of Joshua. All right. Well that's not true. Next podcast is yeah. some more talk on Joshua. We'll get another one coming up. All right. So in the meantime Zakvahamats. I like it. Uh, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. You can find more details about the show at BaymontDiscipleship.com. Check out the schedule there. Uh, discussion groups on the Palouse are on pause for the most part through the summer. There might be one or two, um, but there are discussion groups going on around the nation. So check those out on the website. And thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.